Revelation chapter 6. They call him the King of Kings and Son of God. Worshippers hail him, their Lord and Savior. Messengers herald the good news of his ascension. His reign promises global peace and prosperity. And in his decree reside the power of life and death. His kingdom is said to be eternal. His name is Caesar Domitian. But the church calls him Christ Jesus. Two kings, two kingdoms. Caesar will not allow it. Revelation examines this tension with visions altering between monsters and men, worship and war, prophets and prostitutes. But when the dust settles, only one remains, the true king of kings. And that is our setting as we come to the book of Revelation. Now, if you did indeed miss the first teaching in this book, it's very important that you, um, if you have questions, that you go and listen to that, either through CD in the back or online in your bulletin. There's ways of getting that online. Because there, there I explain our interpretive method as we approach the book of Revelation. And in short, my goal is to let Revelation as it reads as a text to let revelation loose into our world rather than trying to harness our world and try to let it loose inside the book of Revelation. We often hear the latter as we take newspaper clippings and we try to match current affairs and events with the events in the book of Revelation. But in all fairness, that's not actual Bible study. That's current events study and putting it alongside the Bible and making them fit. Uh, What we want to do, and sometimes those may match, sometimes they may not match. But what we want to do is look at Revelation for Revelation. And so I want to let Revelation and its message loose into our world and let the things that fit, fit, and the things that don't fit, not fit. So, first and foremost, it is so important that we understand the context of this book. That it is written by one of the twelve followers of Jesus who is presently exiled on the island of Patmos because of his leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. And while he's there, his churches are now undergoing different forms of persecution. Not always leading to martyrdom, but sometimes. Most of their persecution at this point is coming in forms of violence or exile, like John, uh, social shame, so, tongue twister here, social shaming and slander, which uh, back in this time to be shamed socially is worse than dying because you have to live with a dead name. Uh, it's also coming in an economic hardship or discrimination or fees that are levied upon you. And in the marketplace, if they know you're Christian, some may intentionally up the price on you just because they don't like what you stand for. So the church is going through various forms of persecution. The reason for this is that the churches that John has control over in Asia Minor, our modern, uh, it was called Asia back then. It's our Western Turkey, Asia Minor. They were in a very competitive culture. See, the cities there relied very much on Caesar, the ruler of the world, of the Roman Empire. 
They relied upon him for prosperity and for peace. And so it was in their interest to earn his respect and favor. In a region which the emperor had not visited, they wanted to be noticed by him so that they could get his favors and privileges. So what would happen is these cities would compete with one another to become the most recognized city in Asia by the emperor. So the most obvious way to get his attention was to erect temples devoted to the emperor himself. So Domitian was worshipped by some of these cities. And as this was a very competitive culture of wanting to progress in the emperor worship, the city magistrates didn't look very favorably upon those who slowed the progress down, also known as Christians. The Christians were known to be antisocial, because they did not attend sporting events, which usually were hosted in honor of one of the Roman deities. And they neither went to the parties in which their company, their their job, uh, uh, threw. Back then, um, Apple and Mac wouldn't have competed against one another, trying to get each other's customers. They would have worked together to survive and get customers. So you would then, if you're in the computer industry... (laughs) you know, our example for today example, uh, you would have the tech industry over uh, up in Silicon Valley, right? They would all get together and they'd have these parties where they have networking and get to know one another and help each other's business grow and succeed. And in these parties, they would sacrifice animals to the deity that you designated as the protective God to give prosperity to your industry. And then when you're done celebrating that deity with that great, that big meal, sometimes it would digress into a very uh, crude sexual affair in which many people are doing many things. And as a Christian, you obviously aren't going to have anything to do with these parties, which means also you're going to lose not just your social edge, but your edge in your business. And you're not going to be getting any favors from the people that work with you. In fact, they may be telling customers to avoid you because you are not just antisocial, you're an atheist. Yep. Atheists were originally Christians in the Roman Empire and they would chant down with the atheists as they killed some Christians because they denied the Roman gods who were the powers that upheld the entire empire and the whole structure. Christians were a threat to everybody's well-being in their eyes. So the church was taking heat for these things. So that's our context. Therefore, because John was a real pastor over real churches of real people who had real difficulties and hardships in a real empire with a real Caesar who took the titles that the real Jesus had for himself, we need to read Revelation not just as a predictive prophecy, but also to understand it in its historical context, because John is dealing with a real context. And my goal is simply to strike balance. We often ignore the historical context in favor of the predictive prophecies because those relate to us. We might be living in the last days. So at times, I might uh, ruffle some feathers because I'm not going to hear what you want to hear me say. And oh, by the way, when I don't say what you want me to say, please don't insert what you didn't want me to say as what I said, because that may not be true. 
So all we're going to do, though, is try to look at Revelation from that fresh perspective of its original context. Because, as John says, this is a prophecy. Prophecies in the Bible always, always, always refer to current events in the time of the prophet's voice. We often think of prophecy as something that's always in the future. That's actually not biblical. Prophecy was always primarily a word from the prophet to the people around him right then and there. We have enemies, calm down, God's in control. That's a prophet's job. Now, as you prescribe prophecy to the people and for what they need, sometimes the side effects of this prescription can be predictions about the future. But the prediction was never always, never always, the prediction was not always the point of the prophecy. It sometimes just came alongside because when you speak God's word, his word is not always limited to one year in the historical calendar. So as John is encouraging with these visions, the church, sometimes he is dropping things that are also going to happen in our future. So we need to look at the book in its past, present, and, his, and future context. Okay, so let's recap that real quick once again. Past, John's a real pastor to real people in trouble in the Roman Empire. Present, being God's word, much of Revelation has application for me today, whether I live in the end times or not. Future, Coming alongside John's words are occasions where what he says could be true of the past, but also going to be happening in the future. And so a lot of that is very possible. That's how we're going to approach with that balance. Past, present, future. Okay, shall we? Let's go to Revelation chapter 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in its hands. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was death and Hades that's the place of the dead in the Greek culture Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth 
When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand With that eerie question, we now see the scroll. Let's recap. In chapter 5 last week, we saw the scene. John was brought into a vision of heaven where he there sees one who is seated on the throne. He's never really called God in the narrative, although the worshipers declare him Lord God Almighty. He's always called by John in the vision, the one seated on the throne. To emphasize the fact that despite Caesar's oppression and the culture's oppression of the Christian church and the bleak future to come, as many more are going to die down the road, God is seated on the throne. He isn't pacing in panic. He isn't getting up trying to fix things. He's seated. He's calm. He's in control. Everything is happening under his say. And then in the midst of this scene, John sees a scroll in his hand. And we talked about this scroll, that it's likely containing in, its, in, in, in the scroll, written on the front and back, the plan of God's future to bring the kingdom to earth. And some have commented that it's probably the title deed of the earth because title deeds, uh, if you were to die and to leave a will for someone in the Roman culture, you'd write it on a scroll and then you would have it sealed six to seven times by witnesses so that when you died and were to give your possessions, your will, your title deed to your inheritor, uh, the witnesses would have to come because their signet ring is sealed into the wax and they would have to be present to affirm this is the recipient of this will. And so we probably have the title deed of the earth to which God the Father is going to give to Jesus Christ to say, hey, the earth is yours. Now open up the scroll and read forth the events of the future so that the kingdom can be established once and for all. And so John weeps because it doesn't look like anybody's going to open the scroll. Nobody's worthy of inheriting God's creation. But then 
He's drawn to the point that the lamb who has been slaughtered is worthy. He has conquered. He's worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so the lamb comes and takes the scroll and all of heaven erupts in this triumphant worship and says, finally, the redeemed of the lamb are going to be able to rule on the earth. And now this is where we are in chapter 6. John watches with anticipation as the Lamb, Jesus, takes the scroll and cracks open the first seal, then the second seal, then the third, then the, and he gets all the way to the sixth, and he's one seal away from opening the scroll and reading its contents, which all of heaven and all of history and all of creation is waiting to hear the good news of how God's going to rescue the creation that has fallen. And then we come to chapter 7, and it doesn't tell us what happens. It's this big parenthetical, pause the story, let's talk about something else to keep you in suspense. So you're going to have to find out the seventh seal next week. But the six are what we're seeing. And what we are seeing with these seals, as the Lamb opens up each one, we are seeing... That Jesus, upon receiving the title deed to the earth and the kingdom, receiving the kingdom from the Father, that's, that's a picture in Daniel 7. Good to go read that on your own time. Daniel 7, he, he comes to the Father, he receives the kingdom in this scroll, and he begins uh, to proceed to open the scroll. And as he opens each seal, it's bringing judgment upon the current kingdoms of the world. These judgments in each seal prove that the kingdom of Caesar, who dares rival the people of God, will come to an end. That the kingdom of Caesar cannot stand, as the question is asked at the end of chapter 6, and at the end of the sixth seal, the day of his wrath has come, who can stand? Not even the great Caesar, the so-called son of God, king of kings, lord of lords, redeemer, lord and savior of the world. So it's good news. Yes, bad things happen as the scroll opens, but it's good news because it shows that the evil that presently resides is temporary. So the first four seals are represented by horsemen of different colors. The four horsemen of the apocalypse as they ride forth. The fifth seal then changes, and we now see what it looks like believers who are martyred there at the altar of God. The picture is of their blood being spilled at the altar, as you would for a sacrifice. They're God's sacrifices. They're there. And then the sixth seal, these cataclysmic events. What, what are we seeing here? We're seeing, in the four horsemen, we're seeing the judgments of God ride forth. As horses of battle, that's what the horse was used for, was battle in the Roman Empire. This would be a, a scene of terror. This, these horse, these battle horses are coming forward, and they're bringing the judgments that are showing the weakness of the Roman Empire. And then the fifth seal, as you see the martyred saints, this is the reason the judgments are coming forth upon the kingdoms of the world. Because none of them have used their power to rule rightly. They've used their power to hurt and to persecute and to silence the people of God. And then in the sixth seal, we see God himself as he turns the earth upside down and appears. All of humanity flees in terror at the sight of him. 
just like Adam and Eve, after they had sinned, fled at the sound of God in the garden, humanity is going to flee when God comes to the earth. That's the overview we see in these seals. Now, the question is, how do you read these seals? Are they judging the Roman Empire? Are they going to be in the future and judge an Antichrist and his one world kingdom? Um, What do we do with that? So, let's talk about it, shall we? The seven seals. Here's how those who read Revelation through the lens of the past, in other words, it's all been fulfilled, here's how they see it. The seven seals are talking about the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus, in his sermon on the, not the Sermon on the Mount, but the Sermon on the, on the Mount of Olives, talked about the fall of Jerusalem. Right? Remember the disciples said, hey, when's the temple going to fall? And Jesus said, well, you're going to see these things. False Christ, you're going to see wars, there's going to be earthquakes and pestilence. He, he basically describes the four, first four horsemen here. And that these are the things that come to Jerusalem as the Roman armies come and surround the city in AD 66 and lead this brutal warfare all the way to AD 70 when Jerusalem falls and the temple is destroyed. And the fifth seal is what we see is the, the great slaughter of the Jews as the Romans invade. And then the sixth seal with its uh, great earth shaking and the stars falling and the moon turning blood and the sun to sackcloth. That's a metaphorical picture of what happens when a great earth shattering event happens. Example, the fall of the Berlin Wall or September 11th. Those are earth shaking moments. And the Bible in the Old Testament talks about the fall of other kingdoms with similar language. That's how you could read this in the past. Jerusalem's going to fall. In the present, how would this be, for those that look at Revelation as applying to the present all the time, they would say basically that the four horsemen represent the evils of society in all societies of of all times. Conquest, murder and warfare, uh, famine or inequality among people, and uh, the fourth horseman, death and pestilence. That this is just part of bad human rulership over the world, and it's always been going on forever and ever. In fact, Jesus himself said on that same sermon in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 on the Mount of Olives, uh, he himself said that when you see these things happening, the end has not come yet. These are just the birth pangs of the coming end. So then the fifth seal is that the church is persecuted throughout all ages, and it's true. More Christians are dying today, they say, than there were even in the Roman Empire. And then the sixth seal is God judging the world because of the persecution of his church. He comes and he shows up, and that, of course, is future. But then we have now what we're mostly familiar with in Calvary Chapel is the future interpretation of this passage, in which the first seal is Antichrist, the white rider, the rider on the white horse coming out with a crown and a bow to conquer, and he takes over the world The second, third, and fourth seals with their chaos, the warfare, the famine, and the pestilence. These are things that come in the wake of his trying to take over the world. The turbulence of someone seizing power. The fifth seal is what happens when he finds out that there are people converting to this religion called Christianity and they won't worship him, so he begins to kill them. And the sixth seal 
generally taken very literally that there are cataclysmic events that are going to absolutely devastate the the surface of the earth. And then there's going to be a lot more to come. Well, again, I want to emphasize these judgments, either you're looking at it in the future or the past, they emphasize that the kingdoms of this world cannot stand before the lamb who has just received the kingdom from his father and is opening up the official title deed that says, I claim the earth as mine. Okay, so let's go through this, shall we? Seal number one. So he, he watches when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say, remember that God's throne, kings usually had on a throne, living cre- or not living, but they had creatures carved into their throne. King Solomon, for example, had 12 lions carved into his throne. A huge chair, just of power. I am a lion, is what that's saying. Well, God on his throne doesn't have creatures carved into it. It's made out of living creatures. Living creatures that worship him day and night saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it's these creatures that are now talking. One of them says, come. As Jesus opens the first seal, the creature says, come. And what comes is a rider on a white horse. And he comes to conquer. What are we seeing? Well, the way we read this first seal might affect the way you read the rest of this. Because... Many people will see that this is the Antichrist himself. Daniel talks about a world ruler coming who's going to make a seven-year peace treaty with Israel. He's going to break it halfway through. And so this is a picture of him, the white, the crown, the bow. He's violent, but he's also peaceful. He's taking over, but it's for the sake of peace. Let me bring the world to a better place. We're in trouble, people. Let me heal everything, and everyone wants to follow him. most convincing that this could be the Antichrist is um, that Jesus mentions in Matthew 24 and 13 that false Christs would be part of the sign of the end of the times, the coming of false Christs. And so the Antichrist would fit this picture. Also, remember how when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world? And Jesus rejected them. He's claiming them now, right? But perhaps Satan has now found someone to give them to. And so the Antichrist comes conquering and taking over. Another possible interpretation that was out there was that this writer represents a satanic, a, a satanic persecution trying to wipe out all of Christendom. And so you see in the second seal, he's got the sword, and he's going to start killing Christians. In the third seal, they're going to be deprived economically because they're Christians, and they're not going to, in the famine, they're going to be overlooked in food distribution. And in the fourth seal, they're going to be killed. And the fifth seal, you see them killed. That's an interesting one, but I don't see a lot of merit to it personally. Although Daniel 7 does describe that um, when Jesus claims the kingdom, it's going to be right after a lot of Christ, or a lot of saints, it says, suffer. One other possibility is that this is the advance of the gospel. The, white, right, the rider on the white horse is Jesus himself, and he's going out bringing the gospel to the world. And as a result of the gospel going out to the world, there are many repercussions of people not wanting the gospel. That one doesn't seem likely to me because if you have four horsemen, three of which are bringing evil to the world, it's presumed that the four are a pair, a quad, 
that they come together. So why would you have one being good and the three being bringing evil to the world? It doesn't seem consistent. And you'll see that later in chapter 7. So uh, then there's this interesting one, which seems to have the most historical merit. And again, it can also point to the future. Is that this writer represents the conquest of other people who will later invade the Roman Empire. And this is why. Parthians were the threat to the Roman Empire in the Far East, kind of like modern-day Iran, Iraq, kind of that area. Um, The Parthians were a terror to the Romans, and they were known for their cavalry. They were known as, as warriors on horses who not only could ride horses, but shot the bow excellently from horses. Now, in the Roman cavalry, the archers were usually in the back, right? And that's all they did. They shot arrows. But the Parthians, they could ride and shoot, and they were a terror in the Roman heart. In other words, what John is portraying here with this picture of this horseman would have struck so much terror in the Roman, as much as the picture for us, if he was writing to us, it would look like this. Probably a Middle Eastern man with a long beard and a turban around his head, waving a black ISIS flag and holding an automatic rifle. That's the equivalent that the Roman would have seen this image as. Just a terrible warrior who threatens the Roman peace. Now, John's not predicting who's going to defeat the Romans. The point is simply, Jesus has received the kingdom from the Father. The kingdom of Rome is susceptible even to the Parthians. That's the point of the first seal, that there is not going to stand uh, the kingdoms of the world forever and ever. So, that's very possible. But the Antichrist is also very possible. And nonetheless, his kingdom won't stand either because Jesus has received the kingdom from the Father. Seal number two. And the next three are very pretty self-explanatory. War. You see him coming and, and causing people to slay each other. He's holding a great sword. The third seal When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A a quart of wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. A quart of wheat is what it would take to feed one person for one day. A denarius is what you earned, the average laborer earned in one day. So a quart of wheat for denarius is one man's whole income for the day to sustain him for one day. So this is a famine condition. Three quarts of barley for denarius is a little bit more, right? But barley tasted far worse than wheat. And it was considered the poor man's bread. But if you had a family to feed, you would go for barley. And that would only feed three people. So if you had more, you are now living at malnutrition level. And so this is the scene that's happening. And often that follows warfare, does it not? As the farmers get sick or their crops get burned. But then interestingly, you see that the oil nor the wine is to be harmed. And that's because uh, the, the, the more abundant, the more like wealthy stuff is going to be much more abundant So the poor aren't going to have anything to eat, but the rich are going to have lots to live on, in other words. There's going to be this great inequality. 
We even see that today in America, this growing inequality. But even more interesting is back in this time, the emperor Domitian was trying to regulate the sales of things because wheat was, um, there were so, such few wheat coming into the Roman Empire that he had to change things. Wheat was becoming scarcer and scarcer because the, the rich aristocrats in Rome who owned land around the world, they were turning their wheat farms into vineyards and into olive presses. Because vineyards and olive presses brought you much more money than wheat fields. The problem with that, if you turn all your wheat fields into wine and olive oil, um, you're running out of wheat. And so Domitian actually tried to regulate these changes, but he failed because it wasn't popular amongst the aristocrats. (laughs) We see things like that today, don't we? The fourth seal... um, we even see this today. We see, uh, we see AIDS, we see cancer, we see a lot of pestilence running amok. Okay. Now, the great question, though, is in ver- uh, verse 12, the sixth seal. Are we to take this literally or metaphorically? If you take this literally, a great earthquake, the sun became black as sackcloth. So the sun is gone, that must mean, unless it's a solar eclipse. The full moon became like blood, could be a lunar eclipse. The stars of the sky fell to the earth. How many? Have you seen the destruction one star does when it falls to the earth? And then the islands are vanishing, the mountains are vanishing out of their place, and yet the kings of the earth and all the people hide themselves in the mountains. How does that work? If the mountains vanished, where are they hiding? You could take this literally, but it doesn't sound like the earth can survive this catastrophe. And therefore, some people like to take this more metaphorically, which fits in the Old Testament. You want to jot down in your notes, you have Joel 2, verse 10 and 11. You have Isaiah 34, verse 4. You have Isaiah 13, verses 10 and 13. All of those passages using parts of this text, which don't obviously describe some cataclysmic, almost earth-destroying event in the past, but are all referring to the fall of Babylon, the nations, and Jerusalem in those passages. So this could be a very metaphorical way of saying that the earth is being radically shaken because God has ta- Jesus has taken the kingdom and he's now beginning to judge the kingdoms and everybody doesn't know what to do. So they want to hide. So who can stand? Question, who can stand? Answer, chapter 7. So again, chapter 7 is parenthetical. In other words, we don't advance the story. We pause to go back before the opening of the seven seals to learn who is going to stand through the judgments. And here we go. 7 verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. 
four angels are the ones that can stand. They're standing and they're holding back the four winds, which is probably the four horsemen that come when Jesus opens the scroll. Why are they now wind? Well, if you go to Zechariah chapter one, there we're introduced to the original horsemen. Zechariah sees four horsemen in his vision. And in chapter six, they come up again and there they're actually called the four winds of God. And their job is to go out into the nations who had taken advantage of Israel and sent them into their exile and to punish those nations because they didn't do what God asked them to do. God used them to punish his people, but these nations took it too far, destroyed the temple and removed his people and were way too brutal with them. So what Zechariah is saying is these four horses are going to go out into the world, also calls them winds, and he's going to punish the punishers of God's people. So we see the four winds that are not yet unleashed because the lamb hasn't opened the seals yet. Remember, we're going back right before the opening. And so there's angels holding this back, waiting for the appropriate time. And then we see in verse 2, I saw another angel standing from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until... We have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. It keeps repeating that line, but I'm just going to read the tribes for you. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. That's where you get your 144,000. Well, we have a lot of interesting things going on here. Overview real quick. Who are these 144,000? If you read Revelation in the past... These are the Jewish Christians that God spares before the Romans defeat Jerusalem. He gives in a, in a dream, a revelation that the Romans are coming, get out. So 144,000 taken as a metaphorical number just to say a, a lot of Christians come out of Jerusalem before it's destroyed. Jewish Christians. Um, if you're reading this as applying to all ages, these 144,000 just represent the church. This is the church that's saved for all generations. The number, of course, is metaphorical, not a literal number. And if you're reading this in the future, that this is going to happen in the future, then we know that the 144,000 represent saved Jews whom God protects through the great tribulation when the Antichrist is in charge because he wants to kill all those that are coming to Christ during the time, but these are sealed and protected so they're not hurt by the judgments or by the Antichrist himself. Furthermore, they've been called by Hal Lindsey, who popularized a lot of these uh, ways of reading Revelation. They're called supercharged billygrams. Because they're out there and they're on fire for God and they are converting people left and right. We'll talk about that connection in just the next verse when we get there. So that's your overview of who these 144,000 are. The future, the people who read this in the future generally see it as a literal number because we have it named from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000. Or do we? Check that. We don't actually have the 12 tribes of Israel here. Dan is not mentioned. 
nor is Ephraim mentioned. We're missing two tribes. Levi is mentioned, who was not a tribe. It was a group of priests within Israel. So that takes up one of those spots. Joseph is mentioned in verse 8. Joseph wasn't a tribe. He was a guy who had two sons who were tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. So Joseph is probably replacing Ephraim, but the problem with this is that Manasseh is already mentioned, so Manasseh gets a double reference. Another problem is in the other lists of the 12 tribes, Genesis 49 and Ezekiel 48, the most significant is Ezekiel 48, because there it tells us the 12 tribes in order of the land they're going to receive. And Gad is mentioned first. But here we have Judah receiving 12,000 before Gad. Oh, and even before Reuben, who should be mentioned first because he's the firstborn. So now we're out of order. There's a lot of weird things going on with this list. And if John was simply trying to say, this is the 12 literal Jewish tribes of Israel, why would he not copy and paste the other lists from the Old Testament? Because that would be a very Jewish thing to do. This is not a very Jewish list. It's a very interesting list. Um, so what I want us to look at is that we have connections here between chapter 7 and 6, and there's three of them. First, we have the question, who can stand? This is our answer. The angels are standing, but the 144,000 are also standing because they will not be hurt. They're sealed. They will stand in the day of wrath. The second connection is the word seal. As you notice that one, Jesus is opening the seals, and then we see these 144,000 who are sealed. So, seals are being broken in six, seals are being made in seven. Third connection is battle. The four horsemen were war horses, bringing terror to the earth. These 144,000 are believed to be an army. Do you notice that there is 12,000 from each tribe? A um, 1,000 was the usual battle, is the battalion number for Israel's armies. And so we have 12 battalions from each tribe. Not only that, but this reads exactly like the census that was taken in Numbers when they were electing those who would be the warriors as they go into the land of Canaan. So now we're, elect, we're reading what actually reads in Numbers like a census for warfare. So we are now drafting, if you will, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe. We have an army for the lamb who are sealed as his, ready to go into battle. Why? Because the lamb has the kingdom and there are other kingdoms in the way and it is time to now bring it on. Not violently. We will clarify. I think you'll see soon. So... Not only is this list interesting, but um, nowhere does it actually demand that these are Jews who are sealed for these reasons. First, they're called servants in verse 3, the servants of our God. The word servant in Revelation is used never to qualify an ethnicity. Servant is always used to just refer to God's Christians. You can look at that in, uh, most importantly, in chapter 1, verse 1. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. That's me. That's you. It's also Jews. There's other passages, but that'll be for your questions later. (laughs) Second reason, the seal on their foreheads connects them with all believers. Did you know that 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 22 and Ephesians 1 13 and Ephesians 4 30 all say that believers have been sealed by the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance they're going to receive in the future? We have been sealed. Paul says that three times. Here, these are being sealed. The sealing is connecting them with all the rest of the church, meaning that they, they're not necessarily just Jewish. Because I'm sealed too, and I'm not Jewish. Third, they are contrasted. Being sealed on the forehead, they're contrasted with the followers of the beast in chapter 13. They receive the beast's mark on their right hand and their forehead. So here's an immediate contrast. Jesus sealing them on their forehead. The followers of the beast have the beast on their forehead. What's interesting is as they're being compared, the followers of the beast have no ethnic identity. They're people of all the earth. Why are we now assigning an ethnic identity to these? If they're similar in comparison, then it would suggest that these don't have an ethnic identity. Um, Fourth, you might laugh at this one, but it, it does make you think. Most of Israel's tribes no longer exist, rendering it, I quote, impossible for these 144,000 to be literal Jews from literal tribes. I, I, you might laugh and I quote, impossible because is anything too hard for God? Of course not. The, the tribes are lost. God can find them. But is this logical? Is this how God would work? Because it's not like we just lost the tribes. Like, I don't know. Are you one of the tribes? I don't know. It's actually more like the bloodlines have been so diluted through intermarriage that they're actually gone. So, how is God going to get, I mean, sure, he can create 144,000 out of thin air, but we don't see any indication that these people are miraculous other than that God has chosen and sealed them to protect them. Uh, fifth is that this list fails to match any other Jewish list of the tribes. We already talked about that. And then sixth, revelation implies the Jewish nature of the church. So to refer to the church as the tribes of Israel is not unusual. We were already told that the seven churches earlier in the book were the seven lampstands, which was a Jewish image of the light in the Jewish temple. We didn't have any qualms about calling the church the lampstands. Uh, also, we talked about um, the synagogue in, in, in the church to Smyrna, that uh, the, the synagogue of the Jews who are actually a synagogue of Satan He was implying there that the church is the true synagogue and these Jews persecuting the church are the synagogue of Satan. So they're using another Jewish term for the church, a synagogue. Not to mention the many times Paul does this elsewhere in the New Testament, going even as far to say that we Gentiles have been grafted in with Israel and that the church and Israel now stand on equal footing with God. So to say that the tribes, we have to take that literally as Jewish, doesn't actually render authentic when you compare it to the rest of the New Testament, because the rest of the New Testament uses Jewish terms for us too. Not to say, I hear this argument all the time, well, now you're replacing Israel. Now we're not replacing Israel, we're joining Israel. There's a huge, huge difference. 
God still has a plan for the Jews, and he loves the Jews. But the church has come alongside in an equal status, as Paul says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, to uh, join in with Israel in their inheritance and covenants. We're joining them. So Jewish terms now apply to the church too. Anyways, I go through all that to say uh, that maybe what we're seeing here is an encouragement to John's church that though things are going to get bad as the judgments come against Rome or against any other kingdom, that the church need not fear judgment because God has sealed us. He has protected us. We don't belong to those kingdoms. We belong to his kingdom. And this is very relevant because I hear all the time, and now it's election season, so we get very pessimistic, you know. Um, I don't know what's going to happen after the elections are in. That's going to be a fun Sunday, isn't it? <laughs> um, but we hear, we hear all the time like how America's going down. And look, I'm not fighting with you and saying that America's in great shape and we're going to go on for another 200 years. I'm not at all going to suggest that. In fact, I'm going ex- to suggest, yes, we're going down. I'm not going to say in my lifetime necessarily, but here's, here is the biblical worldview. No kingdom has ever lasted forever. And if any kingdom thought it could and had the power to last forever, it was Rome and their history. We go and study them in history books. We dust off information that most of us never knew about them. They're forgotten for the most part. Every nation and kingdom falls. Yes, brothers and sisters, we are part of a falling kingdom. That's not doom and gloom. That's because every kingdom must fall before the kingdom that Jesus has received from the Father. Because that's the only way his kingdom can be established. Now, don't go out and say like, well, let's make America fall. Down with Trump, make America great again. What? Make America lame again. <laughs> like, that's not what I'm asking us to do. But can you not see some of these seals applying to us now? The judgment's coming. The first seal, to, to conquer. Don't we not have a corporate America that is bloodthirsty to conquer every other competition? And the competition in the job markets and in every sphere of America, it's getting so fierce, even, especially in politics, it's getting so fierce that that's all people want to do is conquer. We've forgotten what it means to be human. We lay people off so that the CEO can live in a fatter house. The wars in, chapter, in the second seal... We're seeing this happen now in our cities with the police forces and the African-American communities and the conflict between them. We, we could see this get worse. This seal might be just now happening and starting, for all you know. The, the one about um, the scale and famine. Are we not all concerned with the shrinking middle class and the growing upper class and the growing, growing, growing lower class? And how many people live on food stamps and that our government can no longer sustain the, the, the free goods we're giving out because there's so many people that now we are in trillions of dollars of debt and that debt is climbing more and more. And I heard, so verify this on your own, that Obama has increased our debt more on his own than when he, any other president combined. I said that right, right? Um, so that's the third seal happening in our midst, that inequality is getting greater and greater. And then the fourth seal, of course, I already mentioned, we have our own pestilence happening, death, and Hades following it. We have, um, we have AIDS. 
We have HIVs, STDs. We have cancer. That big mystery we can't conquer. Is America going down? I don't know. We could go on for another 100 years. Rome went for a long time. But we will go down at one time. And we have to be okay with that. That our citizenship is not the kingdom of America. Our citizenship is the kingdom of heaven. The one in which the lamb received the scroll from the one who sits on the throne and is opening it and saying, all the earth is mine. Come, my chosen ones. We are the sealed who are going to inherit. That's the good news. And our hope does not rest on getting the right candidate in office or getting the right legislations passed in Congress. Our hope rests in the lamb who conquered by his blood and has received the scroll from him who sits on the throne. That's where our hope lies. And we need to, need to, need to revisit Revelation, especially in this season. Lest we despair. Oh, Hillary, oh, Trump, whoever it is, that's your antichrist. I don't mean that literally. (laughs) We didn't talk about that yet, did we? Um, New interpretation on the first seal. (laughs) We'll we'll amend that after the elections. No. Uh, Not... Okay, doom and gloom, fine. But your hope was not in the right person. And don't act like it, because the world looks at our pity savior. If your candidate is your savior, you have a lot more that needs converting than just politics. Well, finally, the last section. I'll stop preaching, I guess. After this, I looked. We're in verse 9. And behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Who are these now? Well, it's very likely that uh, they are... There's basically two ways to see this. First, they are the ones that the 144,000 literal Jews in the future who are supercharged Billy Grahams saved. Right? So they're, they're the Jewish ones that are there and they're terrorizing the Antichrist and they're going around, you can't get us, neener, neener, neener. And they're saving through their witness a great multitude of believers. Why are they here in heaven? Because they have been killed and martyred by the Antichrist while the 144,000 are being spared. So that's an, that seems like a logical connection as well. So if you're looking at it in that perspective. But if you're looking at the, uh, the 144,000 as a picture of the church whom God is sparing in the midst of judgment as kingdoms fall and his kingdom's coming, then these great, this great multitude here is the 144,000 after death. And the reason for seeing it that way is Revelation often has a pattern where John hears something and then sees something. You see that here. Verse 4, I heard the number of the sealed. Verse 9, after this I looked and behold. He just did that in chapter 5. 
an elder told him, hey, the lamb's going to open the scroll. I heard the lamb's going to open the scroll. Then it says, I looked and behold the lamb. So there's this pattern in Revelation. And also in Hebrew writing, they often repeated themselves. And notice the Psalms will say, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, line one. And then it repeats, And let us exalt his name together. Magnify, exalt the Lord, his name, with me together. It repeats. That's what the way Hebrews wrote. And that perhaps John is also doing the same thing here. So here's one view of these sealed people. Here's the next view of them. That they are now, see, see the seal happened. They were protected. They safely arrived before the throne of God. Amidst destruction, amidst persecution, amidst the horrible things that are going on, God did not forget them. They made it. Who can stand in the day of his wrath? These stood. And there they are with the Father. So, take your pick. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? You'd think this would help, but it kind of doesn't. Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. (laughs) Don't put me to the test. (laughs) And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb, which seems to indicate that they were martyred. Now, these are they who came out of the great tribulation. What does great tribulation mean? Well, great tribulation often means a seven-year period in which the Antichrist rules the world in the future. And then, you know, halfway through, he breaks his peace covenant with Israel and he terrorizes the Jews and he makes these audacious claims that he's God. So then these who died and are now here, they would be the ones who Antichrist martyred, who became Christians after the rapture and were on the earth and became believers and the Antichrist kills and now they are, are there up in heaven. Or great tribulation simply means great tribulation, that it's suffering to a great degree. And that's what John's churches were going through. And these are they who were sealed and made it through that tribulation. Even though they died, they could not take their soul and there they are. Well, the final verses. Therefore, verse 15, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And that regardless of who these people are, we all look forward to that. And that's our promise and our hope. So the kingdom of God, dear brothers and sisters, is your citizenship, not the kingdom of America. Let's not be the arrogant Americans that the world knows we are. And let's exalt the kingdom of God above all else. Because ultimately, that's what we do know. Jesus is coming back and he's got the scroll. And I want to be with him, not against him. When he comes and others are hiding in the hills, hide us from him. We don't want to be judged. I want to say, no, I know that I'm redeemed. I'm coming out. Here I am. 